0: Alexander, let's talk about Putin's recent visit to Kazakhstan, and maybe we can talk a little bit about his, his. Uh, I guess you could say, unexpected or surprise, not unexpected, for the media, for the media, it was a surprise uh, stop at Rostov on Don, I'm sure, at Shoigu and Yerasimov, I, obviously, it was expected, but, uh, you know, we didn't know that he was going to stop in Rostov and, and talk about the military situation In uh, the conflict in Ukraine. But let's start off with uh, the trip to Kazakhstan where a lot of uh, business deals were signed. Indeed, this is
1: this is primarily an economic trip. But it's, it's very important to say that the Kazakh leadership led by Tokayev went out of their way to say that Russia and Kazakhstan are allies and that the alliance and by the way in this instance, there's no um, inhibitions about using that word. The alliance between Kazakhstan and Russia is inviolable. Now, there's been a lot of talk in you know, a lot of media chatter. It's been going on for years, by the way, since before the events uh, which brought um, Tokayev to power in early 2022. You remember the protests in Astana and the power struggle with the previous president, Nazarbayev, anyway, there's been chatter for years that Kazakhstan was drifting away from Russia. On the contrary, the Kazakhs went out of their way to say that this is completely not the case, and that um, Kazakhstan um, and Russia are full-scale allies. And they they talked about this repeatedly in every single meeting, and that the relations were completely friendly, that there were no difficult issues between them at all, and bear in mind Kazakhstan economically is um, bigger than all of the other Central Asian states, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, it's bigger economically than all of the others combined. So, And it is the unofficial leader of the Central Asian states. So. I think that's the first point to make so this is a meeting between two self-declared allies it was a very big meeting but the key thing to understand about this meeting is that it was primarily or so it seemed to me intended to address that issue that we talked about in our recent program when we discussed the russian economy now the russian economy over the last couple of months has been growing extremely fast it's now growing at an annualized rate of 5%, 5.1% over the rate that it had last year. And we've, uh, as we discussed in our program, and as um, Nebulina, Elvira of the chair of the Russian Central Bank, has pointed out, this is now creating capacity issues given the long-standing labor shortages. Russia has full employment, so there's no great pool of reserve labour that can be called in. And um, that risks overheating. You cannot run economic growth at these levels when um, the economy is already running at full capacity without this giving rise to inflation. So the Russians now are very heavily into a major reindustrialization program. Um, I was reading about. Uh, I, I was reading recently, for example, about their program to um, increase production of microchips. There's been a lot of discussion about this, as we all know. But you know, they've got a very uh, a very big program to increase production of microchips. Interestingly enough, the company that is leading that project. Is Rosatom the company that runs Russia's nuclear industry, which I found interesting? And I was also reading about Russian plans to um, increase civil aircraft production. New plants are being opened in Kazan to increase production of aircraft, tuple F 214s, and other aircraft like that. And there is also very, very heavy investment in increasing production of, in you know, machine building, tool making, machine tools, all that kind of thing. Now, they are short of labour. And, of course, they also need raw materials. So, as we discussed in our programme, they need to do one of two things, or perhaps they can do both of them at the same time. Either they import labour, and Central Asia would be an obvious place to do it, or they build factories in places that they see as politically reliable and those factories then start producing goods not just for use within those countries but to export to send to Russia as well as part of you know the Eurasian Economic Union and it was the last really that Putin was talking about when he went to Kazakhstan. So there's now going to be a, a, a factory in Kazakhstan to build larder cars, for example. There's other factories to produce all kinds of things. And um, a further steps to uh, integrate the Kazakh economy, which is already very heavily integrated into the Russian economy. And uh, to Kiev pointed out that, you know, for all the talk about Chinese investment in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia that we've been hearing, Russia remains by far the biggest investor in Kazakhstan and those investments are now going to grow. In fact, they're going to grow exponentially. So you can see that the reindustrialization program that the Russians are now engaged in is also having regional effects and is starting to pull in other countries, other republics of the former Soviet Union, especially in Central Asia, and I suspect also before long in other places too.
0: Yeah, they're doing exactly what uh, we said in a video uh, Russia would do with, uh, with the labor shortage and the, the economy that, that is growing, but uh, also overheating. So, uh, you know, a few days later, after we did that program, uh, Putin goes to Kazakhstan, and he makes these deals. So, yes. um, uh, And, and has, there yeah. are a
1: huge numbers of yeah. deals, by the way. I mean I, I mean, I haven't gone through them all, but they are, in, they are on an enormous scale. And again, all those people who were talking about Kazakhstan drifting away, I mean, it, it, it's, been, it's been shown conclusively that that is now wrong. By the way, I fully expect that sometime over the next few weeks, or months, there will be a Putin trip to Uzbekistan, the other big Central Asian state, which has a bigger uh, pool of surplus labor than Kazakhstan does, and we'll be seeing the same sort of deal done there. And of course, in the case of Uzbekistan, we might also get Uzbek guest workers going to Russia and of course the other Central Asian states, it could very easily turn out to be the same. So these processes are underway, and it's not impossible that the Russians could look further afield as well. There's rumors of a Putin trip to Iran being on the cards, and of course Iran also has a very large pool of educated young people who are unemployed, and they could conceivably come and work in Russia. And, of course, it's also conceivable that the Russians might open factories there also. But I think that, given that the political relations between Iran and Russia aren't as close, obviously, as they are with the Central Asian states, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, that will be a much more complicated and protracted process. And,
0: uh, well, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, all the nonsense from the uh, collective West media and the analysts talking about how Kazakhstan is drifting away from Russia—just, just complete nonsense. Um, yeah, it's it's obviously not happening. And um, and speaking about uh, not happening, let's talk about the conflict uh, in Ukraine and uh, the the chances of a Ukraine victory, which is not happening, and uh, even Peskov in uh, an interview to journalists the other day he sounded very confident and he said uh you know you're not going to defeat russia on the battlefield it's time for the west to realize that they are not going to defeat russia on the battlefield Um, a pretty confident statement from uh, peskov and uh, putin after kazakhstan he was in rostov and he met with Shoigu and yarasimov to discuss the conflict in ukraine so uh, what is that all about? Uh, yeah. We have, yes. I mean, ma- I... maybe, maybe, Alexander, you just might want to touch very briefly on, on what's happening in And I know there is a lot of talk from our community about what's going on in Herzog as well. Um, so maybe you want to touch upon that real briefly as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Avdevka, again, and by the way, in Kupiansk and in Bakhmut, there's been uh, um, increasing Russian offensives and increasing Russian gains, especially now, it seems, in Avdevka. Uh, um, Avdevka, uh, there were reports, a cascade of reports yesterday that uh, the Russians have made significant further advances in the Avdevka area. According to, I think it was the Ukrainian general staff, they talked about 40,000 Russian troops now operating around Avdevka. And um, they seem to be now operating well to the west of this railway, which was supposed to be one of the great, you know, defense lines that Ukraine had created. And I think anybody who takes an objective view of military developments in Avdevka can see that sooner or later, this town will be captured by the Russians. I think that this is now in- becoming increasingly clear. Now there was, the other the other one that you're talking about, which is Kherson, the Ukrainians have managed to um, establish themselves in this village of Krinki. Um There's perhaps, some say, 300 Ukrainian soldiers there. Um, the Russians also control this village, parts of this village. There's been a standoff now for several weeks. I think we've discussed it in previous programs. It's difficult for the russians to clear the ukrainians out from that particular village because the uh, ukrainians have um artillery positioned on the west bank of the dnieper which is higher than the east bank that means that they can overlook what the russians are doing but um i have to say this i think anybody who's expecting some kind of breakthrough by Ukraine in this area. I mean, first of all, this has been going on now for some weeks and there's no sign of a breakthrough. There aren't enough Ukrainian troops in the area anyway to conduct a breakthrough. I don't just mean in Krinki, but I mean on the West Bank in Kherson region. And the impression I'm getting is that trying to concentrate troops and assets on the West Bank of Kherson region in order to support this isolated group on the East Bank in Krynki is exposing Ukrainian troops in Kherson region to very, very heavy airstrikes and artillery strikes from the Russians. And what it's actually doing is increasing Ukrainian losses. Now, um, there are, of course, Russian losses also in this area, but Russia can absorb losses. Ukraine can't. So this is actually probably another case of attrition and attrition works badly for ukraine so that's my take about this herson thing um i suspect that the new commander uh Teplinsky, who was by the way um participated in this meeting in rostov he will he will presumably have some kind of a plan and we will see over the next couple of days or weeks what that plan is but I'm pretty sure that the Russians ultimately will bring it under control as they've been able to bring under control every single offensive that the Ukrainians have launched over the course of this year. I don't see why this one should be any different. The big events, I mean, we're talking about 300 men in Krynki, we're talking about 40,000 Russian troops in Avdeyevka. That gives you an idea of the difference in scale. So, you know, j- j- just just... Bear all that in mind. Now, why did Putin go to Rostov? That's a very good question, because uh, obviously they're not going to tell us. But this is, I think, the third visit Putin has made to the headquarters in Rostov over the last couple of weeks. I mean, he's now turning up there regularly. And we've had a photographic study in which we, sh- we see him talking with Shoigu and Gerasimov, And I assume that these people are briefing him on the progress of the offensive plans that are taking place now. So I suspect they're briefing Putin on their progress in terms of the fighting in Avdeyevka and Kupiansk. We didn't mention Bakhmut, but the Russians are now, again, also advancing heavily in the Bakhmut area. And I suspect also that For the moment, at least, these are more shaping operations rather than a general offensive. We're still not seeing the big Russian offensive come. But I can't help but think that sooner or later that will indeed come. And Putin probably wants to be kept informed about progress in preparing that also. I should say, by the way, that I The the, the Kremlin readouts about these visits are very very sparse, as you would expect, uh, as are the uh, readouts that the Russian Defense Ministry provides. But the photographic studies, the the pictures of the meetings, um, are very interesting. And the pictures that we saw this time uh, show Putin with these military officials looking far more relaxed, not just Putin, but all of them, looking far more relaxed and confident than they've been appearing to be in the past. So I get the sense that the Russians have a spring in their step. They sense that things are now going very much their way. And, as I said, even Gerasimov, who usually looks rather gloomy, I mean, he's one of these people who tends to look rather gloomy, he looks almost as if you could see a trace of a smile on his face sometimes.
0: Yeah. I I was going to, to say the same exact thing uh, to wrap the video up. Uh, we don't have that much as far as like information as to why Putin went or what was said, nor, nor should we expect uh, a lot of information about the details of the meeting. But obviously the Kremlin, they released the video of Putin arriving and he's he's Almost running up the stairs as he's about to uh, to sit down with Shoigu and with uh, with Yarosimov, uh something that Biden uh, obviously cannot do. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they they, they look they, they look very very energetic and relaxed. And obviously, the Kremlin by releasing these images and these videos, they want everyone to see the the uh, the dynamics of the, the the visuals of the meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll end it there. The We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter. X and go to the Duran shop. 20% off. Use the code TheDuran20. Take care.